So Father in heaven, in this room full of pastors, I pray that you would restore weary souls and restore to us the joy of our salvation and restore to us the joy of pastoral ministry. Father, would you lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees and make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but healed. Heal us now through your word for the calling to which you have given, mundane and spectacular as it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So they tell me that it was about 275 or so and about 70 students. So if there are about 200 plus pastors in this room and if Barna's recent survey is accurate, then 85 of you approximately considered quitting in the last 12 months. This past March, Barna's survey on pastoral confidence and vocational satisfaction reported, blown away by this, that 41% of the pastors they queried had thought about walking away in the last year. Amazing. That was down 1% from their 2022 study. And it was up 13% from 2021. But we don't need numbers from Barna to know as pastors, these have been some tough times to endure in pastoral ministry. These have been hard times for pastors in recent years. And in such times, Philippians is a great pick for a pastor's conference. So thankful for Phoenix Seminary for doing that. In particular, I love this pairing of the epistle of joy with the theme of endurance. Now, I would have expected joy, meditations from Philippians, but it's endurance. It's good. Paul wrote while enduring incarceration, as Tony mentioned. And he wrote to a people who were enduring internal opposition and external opposition in Philippi. And yet, Philippians is known for radiating with joy. More than any other New Testament letter, and I think more than any other book in the Bible, in terms of explicit mentions in such short space of rejoicing and joy and gladness. Philippians surpasses them all in the brightness of joy. So we are set up very wisely and wonderfully today for illuminating both this theme and this letter at the same time and for learning to count the joys in ministry. Not only count the cost, but count the joys to endure in pastoral ministry. Chapter two continues the focus on unity begun in 127 with exhortations to unity within the church, verses one and two, verses 14 to 16, and humility in the soul in verses three to four with 
four prominent personal examples in Philippians 2. So verses one to two, extend the charge to unity. Verses three to four, commend humility as the channel to such unity. And the Philippians are not on their own to obey, but God himself is at work in them, verses 12 and 13, to humble themselves so that in the face of external opposition, they may strive side by side for the faith of the gospel and not against each other. For the Philippian church, opposition was not new, as Tony mentioned. Acts 16 talks about how quickly persecution came on the heels of the gospel to Philippi. Paul cast out the spirit from the slave girl. Next thing you know, he and Silas are being beaten with rods and imprisoned. What's new now, 10 years later, and what's newly threatening is that Paul has heard of some emerging tensions within the church in Philippi. It's inside this local church. And so Paul, imprisoned again, bless his heart, in Rome, writes with the burden that the Philippians freshly seek unity and humility and follow these four tangible examples of enduring, joyful men of God. Chapter two is wonderfully concrete with these four examples. Timothy and Epaphroditus in verses 19 to 30, Christ himself in verses five to 11, which is the heart of the chapter and the heart of our faith. That's gonna be the focus of this session that we see not only that Jesus endured, but ask how did Jesus endure? And there's a sneaky fourth example as Paul himself in verse 17. I wish I had the time for verses 14 to 18. We're gonna focus on Jesus rather than Paul. And we got two more chapters after chapter two to hear about Paul's joy. If we try to capture an essential structure of this chapter with its exhortations and its examples to a church newly encountering tensions from within, perhaps it would go like this in three parts. Pursue unity in the gospel through humility in your minds. Three, learning foremost from Jesus's enduring of the cross. So unity in the gospel through humility of mind, like Christ at the cross. And since this is a pastor's conference, let's work through that sequence with our particular calling in view. I don't think Paul would begrudge this because he wrote this letter, as we saw, to the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Overseers, plural. In the New Testament, overseers and pastors and elders are three titles for one essential office, the lead office or the teaching office in the church, the office that's our common denominator in this conference. And so let's ask this about chapter two. How would the pastors, how would the overseers, how would the elders in Philippi have received Paul's letter to the church? When the letter comes, they have work to do. Not only of personal obedience, but of church leadership into that obedience. And what might be our calling as pastors today related to congregational unity and personal humility and the work and example of Christ in leading our people 
to obey. From that perspective then, consider the call to pastoral endurance here in Philippians 2 with its key and its incentives. So call, key, incentives. Number one, the call. Lead our people into unity in the gospel. It's verses one to two. Our call is to lead our people into unity in the gospel. Let me just say the specific unity in view here is local church unity. This is about Philippi. The focus is not on elder teams or large denominations or evangelicalism at large, God forbid, on social media. But the particular congregation in Philippi and our particular congregation, that's the congregation I want you to have in mind as we talk about unity. And that qualifier in the gospel is critical. So we have stated terms here on which to pursue and maintain unity. Look at verses one to two. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul has just written in chapter one, verse 27, that he wants to see the Philippians standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this is not simple unity. This is not general unity. This is not undefined unity, no matter what the situation is. This is unity in the gospel. This is the unity of striving side by side for the progress and advance of the gospel. This is not just getting along without conflict, but unity in the gospel and on gospel terms. So given the qualification then, it is good for us doctrinal types, theological types. Maybe not speaking for all of you, but speaking for people who are collected around the seminary, speaking for my fellow speakers, us theological, doctrinal types, it is good for us to appreciate that unity in the local church matters. Those of us who know how to make distinctions and nuances, it's good to know Paul values unity and means for us to value unity. And when the whole church maintains and enjoys Christian unity with the pastors leading the way, it serves both the endurance and health of believers, and it serves the evangelization and conversion of non-believers. So don't think that the unity focus here is all internal. Gospel advance is the context in which Paul calls for gospel unity in Philippi. Now, the reason to say maintain, I use that word maintain with unity, is that unity isn't first something that we produce. First, God gives it. That's why Paul talks in Ephesians 4 about maintaining unity. This is Ephesians 4, 2 to 3. He says, with all humility. So notice we're going to talk about humility here in a minute. Humility and unity go together. With all humility 
and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So first, God gives us as his church unity in knowing his son and believing his gospel and having his spirit. And then we, especially pastors, eager to maintain it, should beware incursions to the God-given unity. Whether those are big, small, doctrinal or ethical, what we believe about God, his world, his gospel, how we're influenced and shaped by unbelieving society, especially through traditional and social media, how we treat each other in everyday life. And we as pastors have a particular requirement in our office that helps us with the work of leading our people into unity in the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.3 requires that pastors, elders, overseers be, ESV has, not quarrelsome. KJV has not fighters, not brawlers. And a positive way to translate the word is peaceable. It's the Greek amakon, operative, not makon, fighting, not fighting. In pastoral ministry, unity and not conflict is the long game. We're not angling for conflict. We are angling for real peace and unity in the gospel. Our calling is not to spoil the peace, but to pursue true peace, even when it requires tension and conflict to get to the true peace. So we pastors at heart are peacemakers, peaceable, not quarrelsome, not troublemakers at heart. And sometimes, if not often, we discover trouble that regretfully requires more trouble in order to pursue true unity and in the end have less trouble. But we don't delight in trouble, nor do we seek to add unnecessary trouble to the sad amount of necessary trouble we already have in this age. Rather, we delight to be unified in the gospel and unity in the gospel is precious enough to us that we are willing to endure intermediate tensions and conflicts along the path to true peace and unity. Which presents us pastors with countless needs and challenges for wisdom. If you've been in this for a while, you know, we need to know when to handle challenges to gospel unity with one-time, nonchalant, private conversations. And when to give trouble more extended private attention. And when to address trouble with public attention in some form. When to let it come into the sermon or sermon series or in a letter or in a church meeting. These aren't easy decisions. How much attention do we give to error and for how long? Some of the hardest challenges in pastoral ministry, which is why plurality in leadership is so important. So encouraged to see how many came with their pastoral teams. 
alone, none of us makes these decisions perfectly and perhaps not even well. We need a team of brothers to help us discern what challenges in our congregation to unity in the gospel are worthy of our attention and not, and how much attention and for how long. This is the stuff of pastoral prudence in the plurality of a team of elders. You might ask, is this unity uniformity? And I think Paul has something here to help us with that. Twice in verse two, he speaks of seeking to be, he says, of the same mind and of one mind. So we might call it a kind of like-mindedness, a shared perspective or a cast of mind, a frame of mind. I don't think that means, it doesn't mean sameness, that everybody believes all the same things about all the same things, but that at heart, in the end, there is a like-mindedness in what matters most, in the truth of the gospel and in the advance of the gospel, as we saw from chapter one. So we are not afraid of relational tensions in ministry. And we should check ourselves check ourselves to make sure that our part in those tensions is owing to the long game of unity and not division. And especially that those divisions aren't stemming from our personal ambition and empty conceit. Which brings us to verses three and four and humility. Humility is set in contrast to conceit. So the call is to lead our people into unity in the gospel Number two, then, the key, lead our people in humility of mind. This is verses three and four. Lead our people into humility of mind. Another way to put it is, we as pastors aim to serve the church's needs and not the pastor's preferences. Paul's call to unity from 127 to 2.2 leads then to the focus on humility in 2.3 and the verses that follow. Now, humility is far more conducive to real unity than pride and arrogance. Pride may lead to semblances of unity for a while, but in time, pride will produce division. And humility, at times at least, will lead to the awkward moments, the seasons of necessary conflict. But in the end, humility tends toward and is essential for true and lasting unity. Quite simply, Much division in churches stems from pride, selfish ambition, and empty conceit, Paul calls it. And often the first practical step toward addressing division in local churches is individual Christians, perhaps led by the pastors, coming to humble themselves. Look at verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I do think verses three and four are the key exhortations in the chapter, leading into verse five and the example of Christ. And as pastors, these are not just exhortations that we need to teach our people. These are first and foremost exhortations we need to teach ourselves, learn ourselves and model for our people. 
This idea of humility as looking to the interests of others. That's what holds chapter two together. From Jesus, we're gonna see it in Jesus. That'll be true in Paul. That's the case in Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's what's holding chapter two together, looking to the interests of others. I mean, Epaphroditus, such, a, such an amazing story. All, all I'll say about him in his looking to the interests of others, he was sick and almost died. I mean, what do you expect when someone's sick? It's like the one, that's like the time to have a pass to look to your own interests. And yet Epaphroditus, as a model of looking to the interests of others, though he was sick and almost died, his concerns the Philippians, that the Philippians heard he was sick and now he's distressed. He doesn't want them to not know that he's well. So he's thinking about the Philippians. Paul wants to send him back so they see he's okay. Don't be distressed over Epaphroditus. He has this kind of concern for you, Philippians. And then Timothy, verse 20, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's a good pastor. Verse 21, most strikingly, Timothy will not seek his own interests, but those of Jesus Christ. So verse four calls it, the interests of others. Don't seek your own interests, but the interests of others. And verse 21 calls it, he doesn't seek his own interests, but those of Christ Jesus. So you got the interests of others and those of Christ Jesus in verses four and 21. And there's a good caution here for, how to, for us and how to understand the terms of verses three to four. Counting others more significant than ourselves does not mean catering to their whims. Looking to the interests of others does not mean letting their desires, however sinful, set the terms for how they will be loved by us or not. Rather, the terms are clarified and sanctified in verse 21, the interests of Jesus Christ. The interests of others to which we look in humility are those which correspond to and are not in contradiction with the interests of Christ as revealed in scripture. But why the emphasis here on the mind? Why talk about leading our people in humility of mind? Why not say in humility of heart? Why mind? The reason for emphasizing the mind is that Paul talks about unity of mind in verse two and in verse five. And then twice talks about counting. It's the same verb in verse three, verse six, counting, reckoning, considering. There may be more going on here than just mental work, but it's nothing less than mental. Verse three, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse six, Jesus did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Paul is telling the Philippians and us, do what Jesus did. He counted, he reckoned, he regarded, he considered. This involves thought. It involves making calculations and valuations. It requires the use of the mind that serves and forms and shapes the heart, which then issues in choices and behaviors. And how we think about ourselves and how we think about others in our own minds and hearts 
really does matter. It is critical to actually being humble and not just putting on the external pretense of humility. Humility grows first in the quiet, unseen place of our own thinking and feeling. It is the product of habitual thoughts about ourselves and others that are either humble or conceited, either loving or selfish. And this is first and foremost for us as pastors. One danger in pastoral ministry is that we quietly, subtly, inconspicuously come to count ourselves in our own thoughts as more important, more gifted, more necessary, more appreciated and respected. Leadership comes with privileges. I deserve them. I've become a much better preacher. I'm good at these decisions of church government. I have wisdom. I've served these people for so long. And slowly over time, pastors begin to count themselves more significant than their congregants. We would never verbalize it that way. But in our pattern of thought, our minds and hearts develop the instincts and then ministry decisions begin to serve our preferences rather than the real needs of the congregation. This is a danger in plurality. We should check each other on this. And that our eldership decisions not become a society for the ease of those around the table, but that we think together for the real needs of the flock. The reason this is hard is because in pastoral ministry, often the real needs of the flock are intention, if not at odds with our preferences in the moment. We come, to the fork in, we come to some forks in the road in pastoral ministry and the truly loving, humble cause for us as pastors is simply the more costly path. It's gonna take more teaching, more time, more patience, more conversations, more double checking, more study perhaps. But the reason that we're pastors and the reason that we sit together week in and week out making decisions for the sake of the church is not for the church to cater its life to our comforts and our ease, but to discern and seek to meet the church's needs. So in other words, we are workers for the joy of our people. I love that Tony quoted 2 Corinthians 1.24 where Paul says, not that we lord it over your faith. We, leaders, apostles, pastors, not that we lord it over your faith for our personal convenience and ease, but we work with you for your joy. Paul knew, use the word work. He didn't say, we coast for your joy. We overflow for your joy. Many good, many good pastoral initiatives begin in overflow. Few, if any, finish in overflow. Call it labor. 
If you're not expecting labor, look for other work. Serving the church's needs, putting the church's joy foremost in our counting is often the harder, more costly avenue for pastors and in the long run, the more joyful. But in the meantime, it's less convenient. So our call is to endure in leading our people into unity in the gospel. And the key is to lead through our teaching and our modeling in humility of mind. And finally, number three, the incentives. I'm so excited to talk about the incentives. Philippians is a great place to talk about incentives. The whole book is just bursting with incentives. The incentives lead our people to count like Jesus. In verses five to 11, lead our people to count like Jesus. And now our focus is particularly on endurance in ministry that we would endure in our work as Jesus endured. And how did he endure? That's my question. How did Jesus endure? I want to endure like Jesus. I don't want to find another way to endure than how Jesus endured. Now, Philippians chapter two does not mention explicitly the joy of Jesus. Verses five to eight put Jesus's endurance in terms of self-humbling. But what in the world are verses nine to 11 doing? Verses nine to 11 are incentivizing self-humbling for Jesus and for us. So we have this famous Christ hymn at the heart of Philippians chapter two. It's got something like six stanzas. How do you pull it together? Six stanzas of three lines each. The first three stanzas capture the increasing degrees of Christ's self-humbling descent comes lower and lower and lower. Stanza one, being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Stanza two, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Stanza three, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Then the last three stanzas, which we'll come to in a minute, Capture the heights of the incentivizing, rewarding exaltation of Jesus. But in the very middle, Paul breaks this three line pattern and includes one extra line that is conspicuously out of place at the very heart of the hymn. Even death on a cross. And the stray line is all the more arresting because it includes a first century obscenity, cross. In the first century, the cross was known to be so horrific, so gruesome, so shameful that it was not the topic of polite conversation. The Latin crux or the Greek staros, 
tamed the ears and imaginations of the dignified. You just don't stoop to go that low unless you're a peasant. Think of all the trials that Jesus faced. All of his needs for endurance in his human life. He endured decades in obscurity. Rejection from his own hometown. Spiritual dullness and unbelief in his own disciples. Opposition from religious leaders, Pharisees. And political leaders, Sadducees. Carnal and fickle masses. One of his own betraying him. Another denying him, all his men fleeing, being unjustly accused and tried and condemned, flogged, reviled, mocked, blasphemed. And worst of all, the suffering and shame of crucifixion. How did Jesus endure this of all things? How did he endure the cross? How did he keep going? How did he humble and humble himself and obey to the point of death, even death on a crux? In a similar passage, Hebrews 12:2 says, "For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross." There's a similar structure that of Philippians 2. But I want to know more. I want to know more about this joy. I want to have this joy. I want to look to this joy. I want to put this joy to work in pastoral endurance. Specifically, what might the joy have been? What reward could have been valuable enough in his reckoning, in his counting, in his considering, in Gethsemane? that would pull him forward to finish this race to the cross when the very emblem of suffering and shame stood in his way. What foretaste of joy or joys could endure the cross? The gospel of John gives the best glimpse into Jesus' mind as he readied himself for the cross and counted not only the cost, but counted the joys on the night before he's crucified. Two particular, two particular sections here speak to the substance and shades of Jesus's joy as he owned and embraced the cross in those hours leading up to a sacrifice. The first section is John 12, verses 27 to 33, not long after the triumphal entry Jerusalem. Previously, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. He said that three times. And now in John 12, he owns that the hour has come. It's verses 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So here we find a first source of Jesus' joy, the glory of his father. When Jesus owns that the arrival of his hour has come and he has the need to endure the cross, this is the first motivation he vocalizes. He had lived to his father's glory. 
And now as the cross fast approaches, he prays for this and receives the, receives the affirmation of this immediate answer from heaven. I have glorified it in your life and I will glorify it in your death, even death on a crux. Next then comes a second joy. This is what the cross will achieve over the ancient foe. I know sometimes in theology we talk about his active obedience, his passive obedience. Philippians 2 and Hebrews 12 don't have an ounce of passivity in the way they talk about the cross. This is active. This is an achievement. This is the greatest achievement in the history of the world as he endures to the cross. So John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Satan, whom Paul would call the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, would be decisively unseated as the ruler of this world. And Jesus would experience the joy of unseating him and being his father's instrument to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the crux. On the tree of shame, he shamed the powers and Satan. You think that gave Jesus joy? I do. Third, Jesus mentions a third joy in John 12, 32 the saving of his people. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He would be lifted up, not only in the ascension, he would be lifted up from the earth, which John clarifies is first the lifting up the cross. Make no mistake, the joy set before him included the joy of love. He had come to save. And on that Thursday night, he would wash his disciples' feet to show them the love that he had in real measure for them that was taking him to the cross. John 13, verse one, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the joy of loving his disciples and his people and his church factors into his endurance. So three joys in John 12, his father's glory, Satan's defeat, his people's salvation. The second passage in is John 17, the high priestly prayer on the very night when he gave himself into custody. He echoes two of the joys already mentioned. And he adds one further joy set before him that brings us back to Hebrews 12, back to Philippians 2. So first, Jesus prays explicitly about sharing his own joy. And that, again, is an expression of love for his disciples and his people. John 17, 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus's joy, which is thick enough, deep enough, rich enough to carry him to and through the cross will not only be his, but he will put it in his people through his words and through his sacrifice that his people might endure. 
that pastors might endure, put his own joy in them, the joy with which he endured. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's almost a definition of love. It was his joy to share his joy to increase their joy. It's love. Second, Jesus also prays in John 17 in anticipation of his father's glory. It's a reprise on father's glory, love of his people. He recalls that his life has been devoted to his father's glory, making known his name three different times in John 17. He references the manifesting, the making known of his father's name. But now, that's number two, now in the consecration of prayer on this final evening before the cross, he prays, this is third, and perhaps most surprising, for his own exaltation. John 17, verses one and five. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, if we misunderstand the holiness of Christ and the holiness of this moment in the consecration of prayer, the night before he dies, we will misunderstand this culminating joy, which is returning to his father and being seated as the God man with his work accomplished on the throne of the universe. Think that gave Jesus joy? Is glorification supposed to leave the heart untouched. The joy of being enthroned in heaven, being glorified at the right hand of his father will not come any way except through and because of the cross. And his exaltation and enthronement will not only mean personal honor, but personal nearness to his father. At the right hand is the seat of both honor and proximity to his father. Jesus wanted not only to have heaven, but to have his father. And this coming exaltation with its nearness is the particular joy that's in view in Hebrews 12 too, like Philippians 2. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Which brings us back to the epistle of joy. The way Paul says it in the hymn is that Jesus endured the cross and therefore God highly exalted him. Not... Jesus endured the cross and surprise, God exalted him. Not Jesus endured the cross. However, God exalted him. Jesus endured the cross. Therefore, as he prayed the night before he died, God highly exalted him. 
Jesus endured by looking to the reward. That is, he endured through joy. He counted the joys, his father's glory, his people's good, Satan's defeat, and his own exaltation and nearness to his father. And so the three final stanzas of the hymn celebrate that exaltation that was the promise of self-humbling. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, weary pastors, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. And in your struggle against sin, have you yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood? And brothers, learn to count the joys like Jesus. We can hardly rehearse too often that the glory of Christ is our great goal and our great joy. And what a calling we have as we lead our little churches in the cosmic victory to crush Satan underneath our feet. And as pastors, as workers for the joy of our people, we enrich our own joy, not impoverish it by folding others deeper into our joy in Jesus in the manifold acts of love. And the day is coming when the many sacrifices and challenges and costs and self-humblings of pastoral ministry will be done. They will be over. And brothers, in that day, when the chief shepherd appears, Peter says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's okay to look to the crown, to the exaltation, to the reward to come. And then the frustrations and the discouragements of ministry in this age will feed our unending joy. At last, we will see how the trials and setbacks have been set ups for eternal glory. And the church of which we're a part and for which we have labored many years will finally be perfected. Perfect unity, a bride holy and without blemish presented to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so we labor for unity in the gospel, knowing that final unity will come. Divisions and threats will be no more. And every hard step along the path of pastoral endurance will be swallowed up in peace, in glory, in joy, beyond our best imaginings. So brothers, let's not wait till we're on the brink of quitting to count the joys of pastoral ministry. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us like Jesus to count the joys so that we might endure in this difficult at times, 
and not joyless and spectacular calling. Make us faithful and make us joyful. Even now, even in this sin sick age, even in these difficult times, make us joyful and faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.